I'm going to be speaking this morning, start of a mini-series of three or four messages about how the church grows up, about our vision for growth at New Life, our vision at New Life Church for how you are to grow. And my goal this morning is that we are, we become excited about the future of the church and we understand how we're going to get there. And I don't mean just New Life Church. I mean the church as a whole across the world. So we're going to be focusing on Ephesians chapter 4 today. And I'm going to be looking at four different parts. I'm going to start by talking about verses 1 to 3, walk worthy, what does this mean? And then verses 4 through 10, which is the foundation. And then 11 through 13, which is the future goal. And then 14 through 16, which is how we get there. Uh, John, uh, sorry, Jesus talks a lot about the kingdom in the Gospels, and we have the kingdom referred to in the letters as well. Um, does anybody, can anybody, do you know how the kingdom relates to church? Is kingdom the same as church? Can anybody tell me? Is it the same? I'm seeing some shaking heads there. It's not the same as church. So how do they relate together? Well, um, most of the parables are about the kingdom. And when Jesus talks about the kingdom, he, he says it's invisible, like the, the yeast in the bread. It's growing and it's powerful, but all you can see is the results of it. And so the church is what you can see visibly as a manifestation of the kingdom. The kingdom is about God's rule, God's power, bringing people to salvation. And the kingdom's what you see as a, so the church is what you see as a result of this. But at the moment, it's invisible. One day, the kingdom will be visible. Everything will be visible. And at that point, God's plan for the church is it will grow up into the point where it does represent the kingdom. And so we see a merging of the visible and the invisible at that point. And that's really exciting. So I'm going to be talking then today about Ephesians chapter 4. I'm going to spend quite a bit of time walking us through this chapter. Um, and then I'll, I'll be picking up on things as we go through. Can everyone read that? Is that big enough to read? So first of all, we're going to read verses 1 through 3. I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to live in a manner worthy of the calling with which you've been called with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Paul's just been talking in the previous chapter about what Jesus has done for them on the cross. And he says, uh, walk worthy of this. Now, is this a guilt trip? Is he saying, you know, Jesus has done so much for you. You need to do enough for him. Well, I don't think it is. Um, I don't think uh, it would be better. An alternative translation would be to say, instead of walk worthy, to say, walk appropriately. Um, live in a manner that's appropriate to this. Because actually, it's not we have to earn the salvation. Uh, let me give you an example. Um um, I don't follow the English royal family, but there's a guy called Prince Harry. And supposing Prince Harry was to get drunk would the, in public, would that be worthy of his position and the line of the throne? Well, no, it wouldn't. It would be a pretty unworthy thing for him to do. Would it jeopardize his position as being a future king? Not in the slightest. <laughs> Not in the tiniest bit. There's nothing he can do pretty much 
that would, that would spoil his chances of, of, of becoming king um, because it's who he is. So it's the same with us. The worthiness of our life isn't something that earns our salvation. But given that we have such a, a position, we're children of the king, we should walk in a way that's appropriate to that. So what lifestyle is appropriate to being sons and daughters of the living God? Well, verse 2 says, humility, gentleness, patience, bearing with one another in love. That word bearing with is quite an interesting one. If you look at all the places in the New Testament, it means putting up with someone or something that really annoys you or you're finding a problem. Do you have anybody who annoys you? Well, this is an opportunity to bear with them (laughs) in love And that is what it's about, walking worthy. Eager to maintain the unity of the spirit in the bond of peace. So much of the references to the Holy Spirit are about unity and relationship. Our our motto as a church is seeing God's, God's power, God's love and God's truth in Toronto. And if you look at all the references to the spirit in the Bible, the Holy Spirit does three things. He brings God's power with, with supernatural power of working, bringing people to salvation. He brings God's truth in the scriptures, in understanding who God is, and he brings love and relationship. And often that last pit is neglected. People are very interested in the power of the Spirit, um, but maybe not neglecting this last part. But here it says the unity of the Spirit, because where the Spirit is, there will be love and there will be unity. So that's what I want to say about those first three verses, the the um, the walking worthy. I want to move on now to the foundation, which is in verses 4 through 10. There is one body and one spirit, just as you too were called to the one hope of your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. But to each one of us, grace was given according to the measure of Christ's gift. So I've translated it very literally there, quite a little different to how you might find it in your Bible, because in the Greek, one appears seven times. It's very striking. One body, one spirit. And I've represented that with a bold one, because that's how Paul wrote it. And uh, seven is often used in the Bible to mean completeness. And so he's, he's emphasizing this. this is, you're all one in this. Anybody notice the, the three words I put in red there in that list? Do you notice what they are? The Trinity. Yeah. Uh, the Lord is the usual word Paul uses for Jesus. And so you have one spirit, one Lord Jesus, one God and Father. And so this oneness we have is from the Trinity and the gifts that we have, which is talking at the, at the end there, is it's from Christ's gift, but actually it's a gift from the, the Trinity, from Father, Son and Holy Spirit. So um, one body, we're all part of this, this unity here. Um, and then, uh, and actually, this is we're going to come on to this in a minute because there's an, in, in First Corinthians twelve he talks about one person saying, "Well, you're a, a, a you're 
a hand or you're an eye, who is the most important part of the body and all the parts are necessary. So there's one body and all parts are necessary. And this image of the church being like a body, we're going to lean on strongly this morning and we're going to see it at the end of this passage as a key image. So one body, one spirit, as you were called, one hope of your calling. And the hope is really about your destiny. Our hope is heaven. Our goal is heaven. When I was at uh, primary school, there were, when we graduated from primary school, people went to, 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 to secondary schools all over the city, and uh, only about three of us were going to the school that I went to. But when we discovered what school we were going to, we suddenly became friends, because you know, we would be with each other for the next you know, uh, decade or so. And so because we knew we were going to be together, we became friends. So look around you, you're going to be stuck with these people for eternity. You know, <laughs> so, so, you know, uh, make friends with them because you're going to have to be with them for a long time. Uh, so one hope of your calling, that hope actually creates unity. The fact that we're going to be together, we're going to be doing this together. One Lord Jesus, one faith, that's what we believe. We, we, we have the same set of beliefs. Um, one baptism. It's interesting that he should put that in there. Um, one baptism, and if you relate that back to what he's previously been saying, it's it's actually v- very, very rich and important. Because when he talks about baptism in the early chapters, he talks about baptism being like dying with Jesus and then being raised up as you come out of the water, raised with Jesus, which is his picture of salvation. Back, baptism is what happens to you. You're joined with Jesus Christ in his death, and so all your sins are paid for, and then you're joined with him in his resurrection, and so you have his new life. And so he's saying this here as a a core thing that we all share. And if this morning you're not a follower of Jesus, I want to urge you that to, to, to this picture of being joined with Jesus in his death and in his resurrection, sums up everything. Because you get, when he died, he paid every penalty that would ever be due on you for everything you've done wrong. And when he rose again, he gave you the opportunity of the new resurrection life that he has, this gift of new life. And to become a Christian, you have to trust him that he will do this for you. And you have to... to Allow him to give you this gift and drop aside your old ways and take this new way on him. And if, you, if you're not a Christian and you want to know more about this, I would love to talk to you afterwards and, and, and we can pray together about what these things mean. So the, the one baptism then is about how we're all saved. We've all experienced this salvation. And then one God and Father of all who is over all and through all and in all. And then he says, but each one of us, grace was given according to the measure of Christ's gift. This each one of us is very important because it's every single person here who's a Christian has received a gift, at least one gift. Everybody. There's nobody who's a Christian who can say, well, you know, I'm not, I didn't get, I don't have any gifts. Because the whole point of this passage is that every single person has one. And, the, and we're going to see as we get to the end that this is key to the way the church grows. And then he says, was given according to the measure of Christ's gift. 
And we're going to see that this word measure appears three times in this passage. And I can just about squeeze all three of them on there. The word, the word measure is going to be an important word in this passage. And, uh, it's actually the, the, uh, the word in Greek is metron. And we get the word meter from that, the word for, for measuring a meter. It's the same, it's derived from the same word. And so according to the measure, this measure of Christ's gift. So he's measured you a gift according to his measure. And this is going to be key as we'll talk about it in a minute. Uh, so that's, that's the foundation verses one to seven. And then he, ta- he expands on the gift a little bit here in a, in a picture in verses eight through to ten. Therefore it says, when he ascended on high, he captured captives, he gave gifts to men. And this is a quote from one of the Psalms. Now, what's the meaning of he ascended, except that he also descended to the lower regions, namely the earth? So it's reminding us, this is talking about Jesus coming to earth and then going back to heaven. He, the very one who descended, is also the one who ascended above all the heavens that he may fill all things. Now, what Paul's alluding to in verse 8 about captured captives and giving gifts to men is something that the readers would have been very familiar with, and it's what's called uh, a Roman triumph. And a triumph in Rome was when a general had a notable victory, and he came back victorious, and the Senate, the, the, governor, the governing body in Rome, would, if it was a good enough victory, they would award him a triumph. And apparently during the entire Roman Empire, 320 triumphs were awarded. So a triumph would be a procession through Rome, a victory march. And during this victory march, the crowds would come out and line the streets. And this is a, an, an ancient picture of what it might look like. And at some point, they would go through this victory archway as part of the triumph. But as they're doing this, the, 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 the general who'd won the battle would throw coins, gold coins, out into the, the crowds, shower them with gifts. Well, what Jesus, what Paul is saying here is actually, oh, the other thing is in a triumph, the guy, they would bring captives from the battle, from the enemy forces behind them in chains you know, to demonstrate they'd won the battle. Well, what Paul says is we're actually the captives that Jesus is bringing behind him in his triumph, in his victory march into heaven. We're the captives behind him, but we're not actually in chains. We're the one getting the gifts. We're the ones being showered with these gifts. And these are the gifts of the spirit that he's talking about that we're getting as 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 gifts. So he links his whole thing to Jesus' return to heaven in glory. As he returns in glory in triumph, he showers his people with gifts. And the irony, we're his captives, but we're actually the ones getting his gifts. So that's what um, verses 8 to 10 are about there. So let's um, just go back to, to our outline here. And um, uh, we've talked about walking worthy. We've just been talking about this foundation that's being laid, and now we're going to talk about the future goal for the church and then how we're going to get there. So let's take a look at these next verses. Verse 11. It was he who gave some as apostles, some as prophets, some as evangelists, some as pastors, and some as teachers. So there are five roles listed as people here who are equippers. And then it talks about the work of the ministry uh, 
building up the body of Christ. So let me ask you, who's to do this work of the ministry, building up the body of Christ? Who's to do it? Christ, what's the text saying though? You're right, I'm absolutely, Christ is the one who does it. But what is the text saying? Who's to do it? Yes, you see, very often in the church, it's the people doing the building are the the apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors, and teachers. They do all the work, and everybody else sits back and enjoys what's being done. But that is not what the text says. If you look at it, it says they equip people. They equip the people of God. Who are the saints, by the way? Yeah, we're all the saints. Okay, so let's get that one out of the way. We're all the saints, and the the role of these fivefold equippers is not that they do the work, but they equip everybody so everybody does the work. Do you get that? That is really important. That is crucial to understanding this passage. And unfortunately, in the original King James translation, there was a comma that was very unfortunately in place. And this comma was here after equip the saints, its head comma. And so it turned into a list of all the things that these leaders should do. These leaders, these five leaders, five types of leaders should equip the saints. These leaders should do the work of the ministry and they should build up the body of Christ. And that comma caused a lot of confusion because actually they, it's not a list of things they should be doing. They are equipping the saints and it's the saints who are doing the other thing. So this is very, very important. Um, so, and very often, even with good translations today across the world, when you look at the way the church functions, it functions by a few, a few of the people doing most of the work rather than them equipping people to do all of the work. Um, so it's interesting that when we read about the early church, and I've got a couple of books about the structure of the very early church, and both of them agree that the church, had it continued growing at the rate it had in the in time of Paul, within two or three generations, everybody in the world would be Christian. It was growing at such a fast rate. Why did it stop growing at such a fast rate? And both of these books um, come to the same conclusion because it went through a shift where in Paul's time, the model was that everybody did their work. But we see in the letters that are written between the churches, a model of, of authority coming in where you would get bishops appointed in all the towns. And so, for example, the bishop... The, the only person who could break bread and give out the bread and the wine would be the bishop. The only person who could do a baptism would be the bishop. And you get these kind of uh, everything being centered around one person. And that person was expected to have all the gifts. And so other gifts were suppressed. And so instead of everybody doing their share, it became a few people and the growth of the church began to really slow down at that point. And so this is a this is an extremely important point. But then it says, um, when is this to happen? When are these people, these uh, people to continue doing their work until? It says, until we all together arrive. And this verse here was a major reason why I came to believe that the gifts of the Spirit are for today and why prophecy is for today. Because these prophets up here, uh, 
it's in verse 11, the prophets are to continue until something happens. So what is it that's happened? Um, we reach, reach, we reach mature manhood and we reach, and we be no longer children tossed around to and fro by the waves carried by every wind of doctrine. So let's just read that until we all arrive together all together arrive at the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, at mature manhood, at the measure of Christ's full stature, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by trickery of people who craftily carry out their deceitful schemes, rather being truthful in love, and then he describes um, how it's to be. So as I read these, I, I, and I think you'll agree with me, this kind of describes how the church is today in the world. That we are children, we're carried away by, around by every wind of doctrine. There are people who try and trick the church today and they carry out deceitful schemes. This, unfortunately, is the state of the church today. We haven't arrived at the measure of Christ's full stature. I'm sure you'll agree about that. This would not describe how the church is today. And if this is true, we still need, we haven't, we haven't reached the until. And so we still need these gifts, these ministries up there. And so when I read that, it convinced me that these uh, five ministries have not finished. Um, we're not at that point yet. <clears throat> but you'll notice the word measure is there, the word metron. It's there again. Curious. We're going to have a look at that right now. What does that mean, the measure of Christ's full stature? Well, I don't know if um, any of you have got kids. Um, you, you've, uh, um, as, the, as the children grow up, you measure their height and you kind of put markers on the wall. Um, when we had kids, we would, uh, uh, as they grew up, we would have these little marks. You could measure how high they were and stand them up against it. And often parents do that. And you, you measure how, how high they are and you can just see them growing. And what this image is here is that Jesus Christ has, um, it's his measure. And he's the one that, that we, we're growing up into. I'm going to ask Daniel just to come out here for a moment. He knew he was coming out, but he didn't know why. No, you're not, you're not yet. You're in a minute. Okay. All right. So you come out here. All right. So imagine Daniel is Jesus and so you stand, just stand over here and we stand him up against the wall. And just like this, we make a mark around him and we draw out his, his shape, his size, his stature. Okay. You can go sit down there because we've got your, your uh, stature already there. So this is what it's saying that, that this is the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. This, sh- what Jesus is like is what the church should be like in terms of being a light to the world, in terms of, of reflecting the love of God to the world. Jesus said to his disciples, I came so the world would see what the love of God is, but I'm going to be with the, fa- the Father. And so it's your responsibility now to show the love of God to the world. And so when, when the church reaches the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, we've arrived. And so this is how I like to think about it. I like to think that this is Jesus' measure. And as a church, we're kind of trying to grow up into that stature until we can represent Christ. We are the representation of Christ. I think you'll agree we're not there yet. We're not yet at the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. It says, until we all all together arrive at unity of faith, knowledge 
of the Son of God and mature manhood at the measure of Christ's full stature. So this is the goal. This is the, the, the place that we're heading for. And, um, I want to, I want to argue that, um, this is something that we, the church will grow up into because it's God's plan. And I believe it will happen before Jesus return. I don't believe that Jesus, that the world will end with, and the church will maybe just about not quite get in there. It just won't make it. I believe that Jesus will return to a church that is mature, that is representing him, that actually fulfills these verses. This is actually God's plan for the church. And so I have an optimistic view of the church. I have an optimistic view that we're getting there. And maybe I'll live to see it. I hope I will. I hope we'll all live to see a church that is the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. Wouldn't that be great? Is that, I would say, can you say amen to that? That, that is what, that is what inspires me to serve God, to pour my life into serving Him. Because what He has promised is so amazing. It's so glorious. And, uh, and this isn't new life, just new life church. This is the church global that is talking about the representation of Jesus. And uh, so we won't be like verse 14, um, which is describing what it's not. So, uh, this is, this is the goal. Then I've been saying, what is the, what is the, the goal that Jesus has for the church? And this is the goal that he has for us. And the last part is how are we going to get there? What's, how do we do that? How do we get to this place? Um, he says, rather being truthful in love, we will in all things grow up into him who is the head into Christ. And once again, that image of growing up into the shape that Christ has for us. <clears throat> this is the climax of the whole passage. Growth and maturity as opposed to being immature, wind-tossed, uh, being blown around. Deceitfulness is being, here in the verse 14, deceitfulness is being contrasted with being truthful in love. This is the opposite. This is growing up into this, not what we were before. How do we do this? How do we grow up into this measure of, of, of Christ? Um, can, so I'm going to, it's the answers in verse 16, but I want to ask, I want you to, to do some work now. So I want you to look at verse 16 there and tell me what it is that we need to do to get there. We all have to do, each part has to be working. That's right. Um, the whole body has to be working together. Um, and the word measure comes again according to its measure. It's done according to his measure. So the image is this, is in order to grow up to the measure of Jesus, we need everybody to use the bit that's measured to them and add them all together, and we will get to the measure of Jesus. Uh, so uh, I want to, yeah, I, actually, let me, let me give you a, um, a couple of a couple of examples of this. Um let me ask you a question. All these gifts that it's talking about, supernatural gifts. Well, yes and no, because everything, all the gifts are only done in Christ's strength. 
Like we're not doing them in our own strength. But, but some, by supernatural, we generally mean breaking the laws of nature. And they don't necessarily break the laws of nature like a dramatic healing might. But nevertheless, there's something that we can't do in our own strength. And uh, so we do need Christ's strength for all of these things. And uh, so I'm going to just a, a couple of examples um, in that. Uh, there's a, a, a woman who for many years came to New Life Church and she had a, a particular gift. She's a very quiet person. She's not here today, so I'm not going to embarrass her. But she would um, rem- she would find out everybody's birthdays and sometimes their anniversaries. And she had this incredible way of doing it. She knew everybody's birthdays. And then when somebody's birthday was coming up, she'd get a card and get as many people as possible to sign it. And they'd get this surprise card. And people would just get joy from her. And she was like, she was like something that glues the body together. She was like, bring people together. Well, we had a couple a number of years ago that went to Africa for short term mission. They went for a year. And somehow before they went, she found every significant thing that would happen, you know, children's birthdays, anniversaries, all the different things. She got a card for each one of them. She got everybody to sign all the cards and then she put them with the dates they were to open them. And she gave them this stack of cards to take with them to open on the dates during those particular times they could open and then they would they would have a message from the church at that particular time. So is that supernatural? Well, not in the sense it breaks the laws of nature, but yeah, this is the love of God working. And it's her gift, her quiet gift. And Paul, in this passage, talks about supporting ligaments. Now, I don't know if, you, if there are any medical people here who, well, I know there's medical people here, but... Um, whether everybody knows what a ligament is. A ligament is what holds your bones together. And if you didn't have any ligaments, if I didn't have any, I'd fall into this pile of loose bones in skin. The, the, the ligaments enable you to actually hold together as a, as a skeleton. And so the ligaments are actually what holds everything together. And so her doing jobs like that um, would bring people together and hold them together. And this is the the the... the, the what the gifts do when they're being properly exercised. Um, so I'm going to just pull this together now with uh, some, let's just go back and look at our outline. We've looked at what it means to walk worthy. We've looked at the foundation and what Jesus has done. We've looked at the future goal, this extraordinary church that he's promised and how we get there. And so I want to, leave you with uh, a challenge and I'm not going to get the worship team to come out quite yet because we're going to end with a video but I'm going to uh, just give you this challenge right now Um, this is going to happen God is going to bring his church to maturity it's amazing Uh, I this motivates me to be want to want to be part of it but we need every single person to have something to contribute here. And I'm going to ask Adriana to come up now. And um, so we're just going to, so the church is represented, represents a body. Just come this side. The church is represented by a body. Now, you notice that Adriana's got two eyes. Does she really need two? Do you think, I mean, could she not manage with one? Let's see how many fingers you've got. 
But what a lot of fingers. Does she really need that many fingers? I mean, could she manage with less fingers? Okay, I can understand she might need two legs so she doesn't fall over, but two arms. I mean, so, and look at how many teeth she has. So, you know, you can say, you can sit down now. Sorry to embarrass you in front of everybody. <laughs> um, so you can look at, you can say, well, do we need, everything is necessary. And you may think, well, you know, we've got other people who do this in the church. Do I really need? The answer is yes, you are needed because God has designed Adriana so she's complete. She has all the thing, all the, all that she needs. And he gave her that many fingers because she needs that many fingers. He's given us people in the church because we need them. And if you are coming to this church, you're a part of this church, you're here for a purpose. You're here because we need you. You're not here randomly. You're here because we need you. Um, so I want to challenge you in this. I want to challenge you that every single person here is needed. And so I'm going to show a video now, if we can swap over to the, the audio. Dwayne Miller was a pastor in 1990. And January the 15th, 1990, Dwayne Miller was preaching and suddenly he lost his voice in the middle of the sermon. And uh, he went to a doctor, had everything checked out and had some therapy, voice therapy. They couldn't help him and a careful examination showed he'd lost the um, what's called the, um, the myelin sheath on his vocal cords, which means there's no way he would ever speak again. He could kind of talk in a raspy whisper, as you'll hear in a moment, but he couldn't talk again. <clears throat> um, but he believed God had given him a gift of teaching. He resigned from the pastoring the church, but he carried on teaching, and he believed that God had given him a gift so he should do what he could can to teach. So even though he couldn't, his voice wasn't up to preaching, he would teach regularly in the church and use the gift. He was determined to use this gift God had given him. <clears throat> and so he continued to use this gift regularly, faithfully. <clears throat> Three years later, in the middle of some teaching, something happened. And it was recorded. And so I'm going to play you the recording right now of what happened three years later as he's faithfully using his gift. So when the psalmist writes, and he heals all of my diseases, let me say to you that I believe God still heals. That hasn't ended. That is not over. Now you have to be careful on how you do this because there are folks who carry things to an excess and it becomes a show. And God has never intended that that be what it is. God heals in his sovereign will. I don't know why God does things that he does, but I know that he does. And the only thing he requires of me is to allow him to be God and me to be me and let it be. To say that every single person will always be healed because Jesus died on the cross is a misinterpretation of scripture. Not true. Won't work. Isaiah 53 doesn't talk about physical healing. I'm sorry. That's just not the context. And to impress that there causes a misinterpretation of scripture. That's wrong. On the other hand, to say that, since we don't have anything after the book of Acts, that miracles ended at the book of Acts and they never happen again, is equally as wrong. Because you have put God in a box both ways. And he doesn't want to be in the box. 
So the psalmist says, I'm excited. Bless the Lord, O my soul. One of his benefits is he heals all of my diseases. And in verse 4 he says, and he redeems my life from the pit. Now I like that verse just a whole lot. I have had and you have had in times past pit experiences. We've both had, we've all had times when our life seemed to be in a pit, in a grave. And we didn't have an answer for the pit we find ourselves in. And I don't understand this right now. I'm but overwhelmed at the moment. I'm not quite sure what to say or do. <laughs> I'm uh, Sounds funny to say at a loss for words. <laughs> yeah, so at that point he was healed. He could preach and he could teach from then on. His voice was back. Quite amazing. Uh, well, but, but he, well, uh, the reason I've, I wanted to show you that is because he was so determined to use the gift that God had given him. He was so determined to use it. And God honored that as he did what he could, what he was able to using his gift. So I want to challenge you that uh, we want to develop the gift of everybody here. And this is the first part in a mini-series. And next week, I'm going to be talking more about this and how we can, how you can be involved in this process. But in the meantime, I want to say... Very often, gifts need developing, and the church is the place to do that. Our role is to do that, because that passage says that these uh, leaders, these five leaders, should be equipping people to do the work. So people need equipping, but that is the role of the church, to do that. And so I want to ask you, I want to challenge you, are you willing? Do you want to sit on the sidelines, or are you willing to be equipped to use whatever gift that you have for the growing up of the body of Christ. And I'm going to ask the worship team to come up now, and we're going to uh, uh, close praising God. Let's just pray, shall we then? Father, I praise you that Jesus has won the battle, and that as he returns in victory, he pours his gifts out on us. And I want to thank you, God, that we are going to see an amazing church that reaches the measure of the stature of fullness of Christ. Uh, we thank you, God, for that. And we thank you that we are a part of that. And Lord, we pray that you would show us how we can be a part of that and make us willing to use what you've given us for this growth of your body. We pray this in the name and for the glory of Jesus Christ. Amen.